Good to have everyone together in church today. And um, do you have your Bibles with you? If so, the passage that was just read out to us from 2 Peter 1, it's our text for today. So you want to open up your Bible to that. And um, if you don't have a Bible, we would like to give you one as long as you promise to read it. And uh, talk to me about that, or they're, they're back at the usher station back there. So I love for everyone to have the Bible and be reading it because it's God's power. And I find that um, when I read the Bible, um, I want to read it with God's power and not my power. So it's good to start um, with prayer, isn't it? Let's do that this morning, and then we um, will see what God has to say to us through Second Peter. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you that you have put your words down on paper for us in, in this Bible, God, so we can see who you are and how you act and, and how you want us to live our lives, how that can be accomplished. This morning, as we are studying your word and trying to learn, God, would you help us? We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide this morning. Uh, comfort us where we need comfort us, comforted. Convict us where we need convicting. And God, draw us to Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Second Peter today. Second Peter is named after the author, which is Peter. That same Peter who you read about in the Gospels, because he is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And also, after, the, after Jesus commissioned them to, to start the church, he's one of the 12 apostles as well. And he's writing this letter to Christians, to believers. We're going to find out later in, the, chapter, in um, the message that this is the last letter that we have of his that he wrote. And uh, there's a, a truth that comes up over and over in Second Peter. And if you know that truth, it helps you to read the book. And here's that truth. God's divine power to help his children share in the divine nature. God has a divine power to help his children share in the divine nature. What does that mean? We're going to discover that a little bit this morning. Let's go right to uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So keep your Bibles open. Keep looking at that there because we're going to draw out a few things that we ought to learn from that very first sentence. Uh, the first thing that's very obvious that we need to take hold of, faith is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you are going to be saved, have a saving faith in your life, it is going to be because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because of your righteousness, you're not righteous enough to be saved. It's through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on earth, he fulfilled the law in the prophets. He did everything that was prescribed by God in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to be righteous. He was perfect. He did it all perfectly. And he did it on our behalf. So that means that if you are in Jesus Christ, if you want him to be the king of your life, you're going to trust him for salvation God sees you with that same righteousness that Jesus accomplished on you, which is an amazing thing. And that's how we can be made right with God. It's only through Jesus Christ. So we have received this faith that is, a, that is through the righteousness of Jesus. And do you see where uh, Peter says, if you're still looking in your Bibles, that this is an equal privilege? Now, what he's saying is something that's, I think, kind of cool. Um, he spent time with Jesus. He was one of his disciples. He was there when Jesus did the miracles. 
He was there when all these signs were happening in Jesus' life that confirmed to everyone that this truly was the Son of God, the promised one. Peter was there for all that, a firsthand witness. He is saved. He is a disciple, a Christ follower. But he's saying that you and I and all Christians can have an equal faith to his. It's all equal in God's sight. I think that's an amazing thing. Now, we have to see here that also the righteousness that's being talked about is a positional effect of Jesus' righteousness. What do I mean that the positional effect of Jesus' righteousness? That's kind of an interesting statement. I'm saying that this is a position of righteousness that you get through Jesus Christ. Because you know and I know that we haven't done all the righteous things, but God sees us in a righteous position. It's not because of good work we've done. It's through Jesus Christ. And God wants for our lives to match that righteousness. He wants for us to be full of right living, of us doing the right things. We're in the position of righteousness, but are we doing the right things? That's a little bit about what this message is going to be about. Because you know and I know that we can't do the right things just because we try really, really hard. We, we fall. We, we have so many limitations and weaknesses. But there is a divine power available to us through Jesus Christ, that will help us to do the right things, to be righteous people, um, even as we are in the positional place of righteousness. Now, this next little bit here, you're going to need to pull your Bibles open for because it's not on the screen. It's verses 3 and 4, and it's probably even the key verses to the whole letter of Second Peter. So I'm going to read it for you from my Bible, and if you've got your Bible open, you can follow along with me. His divine power, that is Christ's divine power, has given us... Everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we're going to spend the next little bit of time we have on those two verses. So keep looking at them as we're talking about them. These different statements I'm going to make are all pulled directly out of those two verses. And here's the first one that I want to pull out. Christians have a divine power for sharing in the divine nature. We better explain what we mean by divine nature and divine power. Divine nature, that is possessing the eternal life of God, of Jesus Christ, as one who has been born again with the life of God. There is something divine that says we get to be with God for eternity. We get to participate in this nature. We get to participate in this living life as God's children. There's a bit of God that becomes ours. What I'm not saying is that we become little gods because that would not be true. But we do get to participate in his nature by his grace. That's that's ours through Jesus Christ. What is the divine power? Well, specifically, it's Jesus Christ's power. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth belongs to Jesus Christ. He's in charge of it all. It's, that's the divine power we're talking about. It's important to know that because that is the divine power that Peter is saying can work in the believer's life for this divine righteousness that we're supposed to be living out. You've got God's power the power of Jesus Christ working in your life to help you live out this righteousness. And that's going to be with us. It's very, very great. Um, Let me sum it up this way. Through the power of Jesus, we are made right with God. We are his new creation. And this power will be with us now and for eternity. 
the logical outcome here that Peter draws is that we would avoid worldly corruption that's brought on by evil desires because we have this divine power at work. That means both now and forever. Um, Right now, in your life, this week, this divine power is at work to help you because there's going to be things that come at you this week. There's going to be temptations. Uh, There's going to be sin. There's going to be painful consequences of sin. But we've got this divine power that says sin doesn't have to rule over us. We've got God's power. We can be free from sin. One of the pictures that the Bible uses over and over to help us understand sin is it calls sins like slavery. You can be slaves to sin. A slave has no freedom to dictate what he does next throughout his day. He has to do what his master tells him. And you will find that if you are in a a pattern of sin in your life, you're almost becoming a slave to that sin where you have less and less say over what you do and you find yourself doing these things that are not helpful and not good. But we have a divine power to overcome that, to be free of that through Jesus Christ. We can have complete forgiveness from our sins and freedom from that slavery that would be there. Jesus accomplished this for us on the cross and we get that through confession of sins, by asking God for his forgiveness and by seeing the Holy Spirit work in our lives to warn us of sins and give us the power to to fight temptation. That's not just going to be now, though, this week, today, that we need that. It's actually going to carry us through eternity. We're going to have God's power at work. And the great news is that when eternity begins, when this world is destroyed and gone, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we're living with eternity for God, that power will be so strong that sin has no effect whatsoever. We are completely free from it, and we're looking forward to that. Peter looks forward to the end a lot in his letter. We're going to see that. We find that everything we need for life and godliness comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is important because everything we need for life comes through Jesus Christ. Quite often, we're tempted to look at other things that we should get our life from by way of contrast. There's false sources of life. You might look for life, for fulfillment, for satisfaction from affirmation from other people. What do people say about me? That might be what you live for, your reputation. You're going to be disappointed if that's what you're living for. You might look for it from control or the control that wealth brings you. You got the control over what your future might look like because you've accumulated this wealth. If that's what you're looking for, for fulfillment in life, you're going to be disappointed. Career success. If it's about job performance and that's how you're going to be fulfilled in life, you're going to be disappointed. If it's from parenting success, how well your kids turn out, you're going to be disappointed. If it's from online comments and approval about the profiles you have and that's what you're looking for for fulfillment in life, you're going to be disappointed. And here's why. Everything except for Jesus can't hold fulfillment in life for you. Everything's going to come crushing down. And if you put that weight on somebody else to fulfill you, it's going to crush them as well if they accept the weight. If you're married to somebody wonderful and you say, you complete me, you fulfill me, you're my source of happiness, you're going to be disappointed and that's too much weight for them. The only one who can properly carry that source of fulfillment for your life is Jesus Christ. And when you're looking to him to be fulfilled, to him for your source of life, All other things are benefited from that, the relationships that we're in and so on. The knowledge that we're talking about here, though, is specifically the knowledge you have from being in a relationship with Jesus. So it says that everything we need for life and godliness comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that just because you know about Jesus Christ, 
you're going to have the source of life within you. It's not because you can quote the facts or you can say, here's what Jesus taught or you've studied him in history. No, the knowledge that we're talking about here is the knowledge that comes from having a daily relationship with Christ. It's from walking with him. It's from reading his word and having his Holy Spirit speak to you. It's from an ongoing relationship. It's not just knowing about him, it's knowing him. And the great news is that Jesus can hold everything that we need in life. He is a good source. He is the one who is able to give us life. So that's a huge thing we need to understand as we go through this scripture. It also said that we are called by his, that's Jesus Christ, own glory and goodness. So I wanted to take a little look at the words glory and goodness to help us understand here. Uh, the, the word that's used for goodness, we should think of moral excellence. And of course, Jesus was morally excellent. There's no fault in him. And when we think of glory here, here's, here's a helpful way that I think of glory. It's a response to God's goodness. Let me explain that a bit. Oftentimes, God's glory appears as a bright light. Uh, for example, when the shepherds appear, or when the angels appear to the shepherds, um, the whole sky is lit up with the glory of God, right? Well, that is helping those shepherds to worship God. It's, it's an overflow. And God's glory, um, it's, it's his goodness that makes us want to worship him. It, it makes us want to say, God is amazing and, and God is good. And so there's this almost real sense that if you're in the, the glory of God, and we're going to see here, at the end of the, of the chapter, that Peter, at one point of his, of his life, was in the very visible glory of God. And what it makes you want to do is worship God. Now, some might claim that they have glory on their life. And if they're doing that, um, one of two things has happened. Number one, they might be making a false claim and be claiming like a vain glory or a pride that shouldn't belong to them. Or secondly, they do have glory on their life. It's because God's put some glory on their life. That's actually something that happens to Christians. We have God's goodness on our life. There should be a sense that how we live, there's a goodness, a a spiritual divine goodness to how we live that actually attracts people to God, that would make them want to say, what is going on with their life? And um, we are called by God's glory and goodness. So that means our lives become marked by these things, the power of Jesus Christ at work in the lives of his people. It looks like that. However, we have a little bit of a choice to make. Are we obeying his voice and living for his glory? Are we intentionally living our lives in such a way that we want to be good, that we want for people to see this glory? Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for God? This choice is, do we we want to live for evil desires or godly living? At least that's how Peter puts it at the end of verse 4 there. So let's keep on going here, see how we can live out these godly lives 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 8. For this very reason, this reason that was just laid out to us about living uh, for Christ, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, and goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly or family affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in that knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's an amazing list there of things that we're to supplement our faith with. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, kindness, and love. 
And these can all sort of serve as a practice or a safeguard for godly living. It's how godly living works. If you're familiar with the passage in Galatians 5 that talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to see a lot of these characteristics um, talked about there as well. And we see by the fruit of the Spirit that this is something that grows in our life as a result of God's Holy Spirit working in our lives. And that's important because we see this list here that's in verses 5 to 8, and we say to ourselves, okay, I want to live with those things, and that's good. We need to take some steps to do that. But if we're doing all the work and not trusting God for any of it, it's going to be a lot of work and no fruit. We need God's Holy Spirit to be at work. Now, let's just see by way of contrast um, what our lives might look like in a different way. So these are holy practices that we're being taught about here. Knowledge, for example, self-control, holy practices, virtues, things you habitually do to obey God. The opposite of that would, of course, be vices, destructive habits, things that we do that will pull us away from God. And both of these things, over the course of time, maybe a 10-year period in your life, if you're habitually doing what God wants you to do with his power, it grows you into a certain person. But if you're habitually ignoring God and doing things that are destructive, over 10 years, that shapes you a certain way as well. So I want to say this. This is just by way of contrast. Vices glitter today. What I mean by that is that these destructive habits on the surface can look very enticing, like they're going to offer you something great, but they become a self-inflicted pain and suffering that lead us on a path away from God. So we need to be wary of vices. And I thought I would bring one up just for an example today, and the example that I have for you is the vice of sloth. Have you heard of slothfulness before? Now, you might think when I say sloth, I'm referring to the person who sits on his couch all day, binging on Netflix, accomplishing nothing, providing for no one. And maybe there's a bit of truth to that. That's the sort of the common understanding of sloth. There's actually a much more profound definition of sloth that I think we should get to. Sloth is, in its simplest form, distracting yourself from God's glory. So... Yes, that can definitely happen if you're watching Netflix all day long, because if you're watching program after program and inviting those distractions into your life, you're going to have no chance to spend time reflecting on God's glory, um, spending time reading the Bible. You're doing something else with your time. But that can also happen because you're super busy. Maybe you filled your schedule so full that all these good endeavors that you're doing to be productive or whatnot, there's so many of them that they've actually taken away all the time you have to focus on God. And in both cases, you've become distracted from God and his glory. You put no time into it. And so you're being lazy in the sense that your first priority is no longer first. A sloth can also happen in relationships. Um, If if you're um, a married person and you're not giving time to appreciating your spouse, that's a form of sloth and you're going to find the relationship suffers for it. So if you put yourself on this path of sloth now, not giving God proper time to have devotions, proper time to worship him regularly as a habit, what's your life going to look like in 10 years? How is that going to shape you and form you? It's going to pull you away from God, isn't it? By contrast, Peter is saying, no, no, don't do those things. Practice these virtues, these habits over and over again so that can form you into a person who has a godliness, a righteousness in your life. They'll form a virtue. But it's not a virtue if you do it on your own strength. Always remember, this is talking about God's divine power at work in the believer. We need his strength for this, the strength of Jesus Christ working in our life. It's by the grace and the power of God that these become a virtue. 
um, but our participation is vital. It doesn't happen just automatically. We can't sit back and say, God, cause my life to be virtuous. No, we have to do something about it. It's like if you want to become fit, so you buy a gym membership and you hire a trainer, but you never go to the gym. Well, you're not going to get fit yet. You actually have to put in the time and do the exercise. It's the same with developing spiritual habits in your life. You've got to put in the time and do the exercise. Now, how many of you have ever tried to get fit and found out it's much easier with a friend helping you? Maybe you have two or three people together who have formed a bit of a team and they're going to encourage each other. It's the same with these spiritual habits that we need to do, these virtues. And so I want to have an application point today called small groups. Small groups are a great way to grow these virtues in life. You pray for each other on a weekly basis. You encourage each other. You could even, your small group might consider taking 2 Peter 1, 5 to 8 and seeing that list and saying, Okay, this year, how can we encourage each other in goodness? How can we encourage each other in kindness? Maybe you're going to take one of these virtues per month and really just focus on it. And you can ask each other how it went the next week. You can pray for each other. You can do studies on it. But by doing this together in a small group, you'll find yourself being much more effective. You know, Christianity is not something that works well just as individuals. We need a family. We need a community. And small groups is the strategy that our church uses to help everybody have that circle of encouragement and support in your life. So if you're not in a small group yet, I want to encourage you to sign up today. We have a responsibility to submit to Jesus Christ's divine power as we look towards eternity. There's a reason why this is so important. It's because this life is not the end. There is an eternity to come to God. In one sense, we have to live like you were dying. And I'm not talking about going skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, or 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. That's from a country song. Um, however, I, what I am talking about is living in light of eternity. Remembering, we're, as, if you're a Christian, you're not a citizen of this world. This isn't where you draw everything from. We're a citizen of heaven. This world is not our home. We want to bring as many people to heaven with us as we can. We want to shine God's light bright. And it's not so that we can make this world everything. It's so that we're putting our treasure in heaven. We're living for that. And Peter is making it very clear when he writes this letter. He thinks his time on earth is just about over. He, he's preparing to die. We can see that in verse 14. Knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me. This is the last letter we have of Peter's. But I think he lived his life looking forward towards eternity, at least from the time he knew Christ. He's encouraging Christians to do the same. How, how can we do that? How can we remain strong and fight this um, apathy that can form in our lives? Peter gives us a really practical word of advice here in verse 12. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have. What are these basic things he wants to remind people of? It's gospel promises. What are these things that we should be reminding of ourselves? Maybe things we want to write down on a cue card and put in our Bible and, and remember and thank God for daily. Things like the fact that we are in the new covenant with Christ if we're Christians. Jesus has made a covenant for us with his blood, one where God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And we can have this relationship with God. We can remind ourselves of that truth daily. We can remind ourselves of the covenant promise of rest. We have a rest that's ours. Now, we still have to work hard, but the rest is this. 
you can go to bed at night knowing that if this is the end, God's already done the work in your life. You're, you're saved. You're his. You don't have to, to fight to become saved. There's a rest from fighting for salvation. This has been accomplished. There's the gospel promise that Jesus is the bread of life. He is our source of life. Nothing in this world can feed us like Jesus can feed us. We have that available. We have the gospel promise that we can remind ourselves of, of resurrection life. We're going to have resurrected bodies just like Jesus had a resurrected body that could do amazing things. We're looking forward to that. His was a first fruit. We're going to be with God for eternity. And we also have the gospel promise that God has given up to us himself in the form of the Holy Spirit, living in us, helping us, guiding us, comforting us. There's these amazing truths that are ours that we just can't grow numb to. We've got to remind ourselves and, and thank God for them. Because Jesus is coming again. If you keep on reading Second Peter, you're going to see he's very excited that Jesus is coming again. And he'd actually experienced Jesus in glory on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. You could read about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he recalls it here in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from that majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is sharing with his readers, he has seen the glory of God on display. He was there when Jesus' clothes were whiter than any launderer could make him. When he was shining and there was this cloud that came over them and it was bright and he heard God speaking about his son. He was there. He's giving witness and he's saying, this is not just a myth about Jesus Christ. I was there. I experienced his glory and I am looking forward to the day when he comes again in the clouds, shining bright for the world to see. You know, Peter didn't react so well. If you read the account in Luke about Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John, and Jesus is there. Um, P- Peter's kind of babbling on about building tabernacles. It's, it says he didn't even know what he was saying. But now he's had decades to reflect on this, to remember. This is, this is a touchstone, a milestone in his life. He's looking back. He's knowing he's about to die, knowing he's about to be with God in glory. And he wants for the church to live out their lives by God's divine power in all godliness and glory. He knows it's not a myth. He knows it's the truth. He's lived it. He's seen it. And he wants for the church to know that Jesus has the divine power to make those who love him holy and to help us live lives that will bring glory to God, lives that will count today and for eternity. We need God's divine power at work in our lives. We need to daily act on that and trust God for it. Peter's letter is to the church. He's imploring them, look towards the future a time when Jesus will come to judge the world. He wants the church to live towards that time with lives that today are right and pure for their sake and for the sake of the world that we're supposed to be helping and showing 
the light of Jesus too. And he wants us to know very clearly, and I want you to know very clearly this morning, you can't do this on your own strength. Being a Christian shining brightly for God doesn't happen by trying really, really hard. Do you have to try hard? Yes, but it's because God's Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. And that's what we want to trust God for today. Here's a few, just three quick application points to give you. Number one, how should we respond to Peter's letter? We should renew our commitment to Christ, refreshing ourselves with the truth of the gospel. You might want to put something where you'll see it every single day, where you can be reminding yourselves consistently of what God has done, of this reality that we are living in. We can use that even to encourage one another. Secondly, we should commit to living for his glory. Every day you can say, God, help me today to live for your glory. How may actions to be ones that will reflect well on you. Let your goodness be evident in my life in such a way where other people are drawn towards you. Bless my words, bless my actions. That can be a daily prayer of ours to commit to living for God's glory. And the final thing we ought to do is we should acknowledge we need the work of God in our life. We need his work. We can't do this without him. We need the work of God in our church for any of this to be accomplished. And guess what? The word of God says this is possible. We can have God's divine power, the same authority and power that's at work of Jesus Christ. He wants that power to be on display and active in his church. And so today we're going to close our service by having a membership covenant time where we affirm it together. And what I mean by that is we're going to go through all the truths of what does it mean to be a part of this family at Hawkwood Baptist Church. So the elders are going to come forward and lead us through this. And it's a practical way for all of us to declare what we believe to be true. And as we declare these truths, as you read through them, they're challenging. So do so at the same time praying, God, help us to live this out. God, help me to live these truths out.